Do dogs have spirits which survive death? And might we someday be reunited with pets who have passed on before us? This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to the Other Realm. Throughout my life, I've collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and return to tell the tale. These are their stories. The early 20th century writer and ghost investigator Elliot O'Donnell has provided us with two stories which suggest that our canine friends may well survive the grave. One day, O'Donnell received a letter from a Mrs. Percy, who told him of an incident she experienced while walking near what, for legal reasons, O'Donnell identified only as H Street in London. Though I am by no means overindulgent to dogs, Mrs. Percy wrote, the latter generally greet me very effusively, and it would seem that there is something in my individuality which is peculiarly attractive to them. This being so, I was not greatly surprised one day to find myself persistently followed by a rough-haired dachshund wearing a gaudy yellow collar. I tried to scare it away by shaking my sunshade at it, but all to no purpose. He came resolutely on, and I was beginning to despair of getting rid of it when I came to H Street, where my husband once practiced as an oculist. There, it suddenly altered its tactics, and instead of keeping at my heels, became my conductor, forging slowly ahead with a gliding motion that both puzzled and fascinated me. I furthermore observed that notwithstanding the temperature, it was not a whit less than 90 degrees in the shade. The legs and stomach of the dachshund were covered with mud and dripping with water. When it came to number 90, it halted, and veering swiftly round, eyed me in the strangest manner, just as if it had some secret it was bursting to disclose. It remained in this attitude until I was within two or three feet of it, certainly not more, when, to my utter amazement, it absolutely vanished, melted away into thin air. The iron gate leading to the area was closed, so that there was nowhere for it to have hidden, and besides, I was almost bending over it at the time, as I wanted to read the name on its collar. There being no one at hand, I could not obtain a second opinion, and so came away wondering whether what I had seen was actually a phantasm or a mere hallucination. Number 90, I might add, judging by the brass plate on the door, was inhabited by a doctor with an unpronounceable foreign name. But that was not to be the end of the story. Some time later, O'Donnell received a letter from a Mrs. Howard, 
a complete stranger to Mrs. Percy, who also had a strange story to tell. I once had a rough-haired dachshund, Robert, whom I loved devotedly, wrote Mrs. Howard. We were living at the time near H Street, which always had a peculiar attraction for dear Robert, who I am now obliged to confess had rather too much liberty, more indeed than eventually proved good for him. The servants complained that Robert ruled the house, and I believe what they said was true, for my sister and I idolized him, giving him the very best of everything, and never having the heart to refuse him anything he wanted. You will probably scarcely credit it, but I have sat up all night nursing him when he had a cold and was otherwise indisposed. Can you therefore imagine my feelings when my dear darling was absent one day from dinner? Such a thing had never happened before, for fond of morning constitutionals as poor Robert was, he was always the soul of punctuality at mealtimes. Neither my sister nor I would hear of eating anything. Whilst he was missing, not a morsel did we touch. But slipping on our hats and bidding the servants to do the same, we scoured the neighborhood instead. The afternoon passed without any sign of Robert, and when bedtime came, he always slept in our room, and still no signs of our pet. I thought we should both have gone mad. Of course we advertised, selecting the most popular and accordingly the most likely papers, and we resorted to other mediums too. But alas, it was hopeless. Our darling little Robert was irrevocably and irredeemably lost. For days we were utterly inconsolable, doing nothing but mope morning, noon, and night. I cannot tell you how forlorn we felt, nor how long we should have remained in that state, but for an incident which, although revealing the terrible manner of his death, gave us every reason to feel sure we were not parted from him for all time, but would meet him again in the great hereafter. It happened in this wise. I was walking along W Street one evening, when to my intense joy and surprise, I suddenly saw my darling standing on the pavement a few feet ahead of me, regarding me intently from out of his pathetic brown eyes. A sensation of extreme coldness now stole over me, and I noticed something akin to a shock that, in spite of the hot, dry weather, Robert looked as if he had been in the rain for hours. He wore the bright yellow collar I had bought him shortly before his disappearance, so that had there been any doubt as to his identity, that would have removed it instantly. On my calling to him, he turned quickly round, and with a slight gesture of his head as if bidding me to follow, he glided forward. My natural impulse was to run after him, pick him up and smother him with kisses, but try as hard as I could. I could not diminish the distance between us, 
although he never appeared to alter his pace. I was quite out of breath by the time we reached H Street, where, to my surprise, he stopped at number 90, and, turning round again, gazed at me in the most beseeching manner. I can't describe that look. Suffice it to say that no human eyes could have been more expressive. But of what beyond the most profound love and sorrow I cannot, I dare not, attempt to state. I have pondered upon it through the whole of a midsummer night, but not even the severest of my mental efforts have enabled me to solve it to my satisfaction. Could I but do that, I feel I should have fathomed the greatest of all mysteries, the mystery of life and death. I do not know for how long we stood there looking at one another. It may have been minutes or hours or again but a few paltry seconds. He took the initiative from me, for as I leaped forward to raise him in my arms, he glided through the stone steps into the area. Convinced now that what I beheld was Robert's apparition, I determined to see this strange affair through to the bitter end, and entering the gate, I also went down into the area. The phantom had come to an abrupt halt by the side of a low wooden box, and as I foolishly made an abortive attempt to reach it with my hand, it vanished instantaneously. I searched the area thoroughly, and was assured that there was no outlet save by the steps I had just descended, and no hole, nor nook, nor cranny where anything the size of Robert could be completely hidden from sight. What did it all mean? Ah, I knew Robert had always had a weakness for exploring areas, especially in H Street, and in the box where his wraith disappeared, I espied a piece of raw meat. Now there are ways in which a piece of raw meat may lie without arousing suspicion, but the position of this morsel strangely suggested that it had been placed there carefully and for assuredly no other reason than to entice stray animals. Resolving to interrogate the owner of the house on this subject, I rapped at the front door, but was informed by the manservant, obviously a German, that his master never saw anyone without an appointment. I then did a very unwise thing. I explained the purpose of my visit to this man, who not only denied any knowledge of my dog, but declared the meat must have been thrown into the area by some passer-by. No one in this house throw away good meat like that, he explained. We eat all we can get here. We have nothing for the animals. Please, go away at once, or the master will be very angry. He stand no nonsense from anyone. And as I had no alternative, for after all, 
who would regard a ghost in the light of evidence? I had to obey. I found out, however, from a medical friend that number 90 was tenanted by Mr. K., an Anglo-German who was deemed a very clever fellow at a certain London hospital, where he was often occupied in vivisection. I dare say, my friend went on to remark, K. does a little vivisecting in his private surgery by way of practice. But can't he be stopped, I asked? It's horrible, monstrous that he should be allowed to murder our pets. You don't know for certain that he has, was the reply. You only suppose so from what you say you saw, and the evidence of that immaterial nature is no evidence at all. No, you can do nothing except to be careful in the future, and if you have another dog, make him steer clear of number 98th Street. I was sensible enough to see that he was right, and the matter dropped. I soon noticed one thing, however, namely, that there were no more pieces of meat temptingly displayed in the box, so it is just possible Kay got wind of my inquiries and thought it policy to desist from his nefarious practices. Poor Robert! To think of him suffering such a cruel and ignominious death and my being powerless to avenge it. A particularly frightening case of what appears to be a ghostly dog, and perhaps another unidentified ghost, was recounted by O'Donnell in his book Twenty Years' Experience as a Ghost Hunter involving a Glasgow solicitor whom O'Donnell calls James McKay, although his actual name and the name of the street in which he resided may also have been changed for legal reasons. I shall present the story in O'Donnell's own words. Desirous of taking a house close to his office, O'Donnell wrote, Mackay went one morning to look at one in Duke Street. He went there alone, and carefully closing the front door behind him, proceeded to wander from room to room, beginning with the basement. As he was going upstairs to the first floor, he suddenly heard footsteps following him. He turned sharply round, there was no one there. Thinking this was odd, but attributing it to the acoustic properties of the walls, he continued his ascent. Having arrived on the first landing, he went into one of the rooms. The steps followed him. A brilliant idea then occurred to him. He stamped his foot. There was no echo. He turned round and went into the next room, and the steps once again accompanied him. Then he grew frightened. It was broad daylight. The sun was shining brilliantly, and the birds were singing. 
but there was something in the house that jarred him on horribly a something that was completely out of humor with the golden sunbeams and the cheerful chirping of the sparrows the day was hot and the sun was pouring in through the blindless windows but in spite of this the rooms were icy and he was deliberating whether it was worth while to explore the house further when he caught sight of a shadow on the wall it was not his own shadow it was that of a man with arms stretched out horizontally on either side of him and whereas the right arm was complete in every detail the left hand had no hand james mackay now yielded to an ungovernable terror and rushed frantically out of the house one would naturally think that after all this mackay would have vowed never to go near the place again nothing of the sort the house fascinated him he could not get it out of his mind he even dreamed of it dreamed of it in connection with some mystery that he must solve that he alone could solve besides there was not another house in town so conveniently situated nor so cheap consequently he took it and within a fortnight had moved in with all his family and household goods for the first few weeks everything went swimmingly and mackay who was shrewd congratulated himself on having made such an excellent bargain then occurred an incident which recalled sharply the day he had first seen the place he was writing some letters one morning in his study when the nursemaid entered white and agitated come to the nursery sir she implored the children are playing with something that looks like a dog and yet isn't one i don't know what it is and she burst out crying you're mad mackay said sharply and springing to his feet he ran upstairs on reaching the nursery the blurred outline of something like a huge dog or wolf came out of the half-open door and raced past him so close that he distinctly felt it brush against his clothes where it went he could not say he was thinking of the children and did not stop to look oddly enough the children were not a bit afraid on the contrary they were pleased and curious what a strange doggy it was daddy they cried it never wagged its tail like other doggies and whenever we tried to stroke it it slipped away from us we never touched it once sorely puzzled mackay told his wife and the two decided that if anything further happened they must leave the house that night mackay happened to sit up rather late at last he got up and was about to turn off the gas when he felt his upstretched hand suddenly caught hold of something large and soft that did not seem to have any fingers he was so frightened that he screamed whereupon his hand was instantly released and there was a loud crash overhead thinking something had happened to his wife he rushed upstairs and found her sitting up in bed and talking in her sleep 
She was apparently addressing a black, shadowy figure that was crouching on the floor opposite her. As McKay approached, the thing moved towards the wall and vanished. Mrs. McKay then awoke and begged her husband to take her out of the house at once, as she had dreamed most vividly that an appalling murder had been committed there, and that the murderer had come out of the room with outstretched hands, asking her to look at them. McKay, who had had quite enough of it too, promised to do as she wished, and before another twenty-four hours had passed, the house was once again empty. These were the bare facts of the case, and as they were given to me by one of his clients. I had no difficulty in obtaining an interview with Mr. McKay, who, I was told, still had the keys of the house. It was not, however, so easy to obtain consent to spend a night on the premises, and he would only permit me to do so on the condition that he himself accompanied me, and that I promised to keep his visit a profound secret. The evening chosen for our enterprise proved ever memorable. The rain came down in torrents, and the wind, a veritable tornado, made any attempt to hold up an umbrella utterly impossible. Indeed, it was as much as I could do to hold up myself. Whilst to add to my discomfort, at almost every step, I plunged ankle-deep in icy cold puddles. At length, drenched to the skin, I arrived at the house. McKay was standing on the doorstep, swearing furiously. He could not, so he said, find the key. However, he produced it now, and we were soon standing inside, shaking the water from our clothes. Those were the days before pocket flashlights had become general, and we had to be content with candles. We each lighted one, and at once commenced to search the premises to make sure no one was in hiding. The house, as far as I can recollect, consisted of four stories and a basement. None of these rooms were very large. The wallpapers were hideous, and I remember thanking my stars that I was not called upon to live in such hopelessly inartistic quarters. McKay asked me if I could detect anything peculiar in the atmosphere, but I could only detect extreme mustiness, and told him so. I fancied he seemed very fidgety and ill at ease. However, as he was a much older man than myself, and had some experience in the house, I felt perfectly safe with him. After we had been in all of the rooms, we descended to the ground floor and commenced our vigil on the staircase leading from the hall to the first landing. I think we stand more chance of seeing something here than anywhere else, McKay said. And in the case of anything very alarming happening, we are close to the front door. We both looked in the direction he indicated. He spoke only half in fun, and I observed that his fingers twitched a good deal, and that his eyes were never at rest. Oughtn't we put out the candles, I said. Ghosts surely materialize much more readily in the dark. 
but he would not hear of it. All his experiences, he said, had taken place in the light, and he believed only spoof ghosts at seances require the opposite conditions. He then regaled me once more with all that had happened during his occupation of the house. He was still telling me when there came a loud rat-tat at the door. That's a policeman, he said. He must have seen our light. He spoke truly, for when we opened the door, a burly figure in helmet and cape stood on the step and flashed his dripping bull's-eye in our faces. On hearing McKay's name, the constable was instantly appeased, and when we mentioned ghosts, he laughed long and loud. Well, gentlemen, he said, you won't never be bothered by an apparition so long as you have that dog with you. I bet he would scare away any number of ghosts, and burglars too. If I may be so bold as to ask, what breed do you call him? I've never seen anything quite like him before. And he waved his lamp towards the stairs. We both looked in the direction he indicated, and there, halfway up the stairs, with its face apparently turned towards us, was the black, shadowy outline of some shaggy creature, which to me looked not so much like a dog as a bear. It remained stationary for a moment or so, and then retreating backwards, seemed to disappear into the wall. Well, gentlemen, good night, the policeman said, lowering his lamp. It's time I was going. He turned on his heel and was walking off when McKay called him back. Wait a moment, constable, he said, and we'll come with you. He cast a swiftly furtive glance around him as he spoke, then, blowing out the lights, he caught me by the arm and dragged me away. But the dog, sir, the policeman said as the front door closed behind us with a bang. It ain't come out. And it never will, McKay responded grimly. This is Mark Lyon, inviting you to join me on the first day of every month as we explore more true tales from the Other Realm. The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theatre. Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland, and by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and Natalie a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei, and by Windwhistle Press. 
publishers of Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors by Mildred Darby, and San Francisco Ghosts by Mark Lyon.